Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of technology with the worlds of sports, media, and entertainment. Today, we're going to have our August uh, roundtable, which we're particularly excited about, discussing uh, the current topics of the week. And we've got some fantastic guests to uh, get involved. So without further ado, let's dive straight into it. We're excited to welcome a new member or a new addition to the Sportsoft family. Nick Shaw is Managing Director of Europe, Middle East and Africa at Greenfly. Greenfly has been a uh, Sportsoft member for a while, but Nick is relatively new to Greenfly after having had a host of roles in heavyweight places such as the RFU, Sky and the ECB. And Greenfly is the company that allows sports organizations to capture organize and distribute content to their staff, players, and partners directly in order to be able to leverage that content throughout the entire sports ecosystem as efficiently as possible. Nick, welcome to the Sportsoft Podcast. Thank you. Honoured. Absolutely honoured to be here. It's one of my first podcasts as well, so please, please go go, go easy on me. Uh, yeah, month in. I'm a month in. A month in. Well, it's uh, this is the this is surely the highlight of the month, and we'll get to the highlight of the sporting highlight of the month in a second here. But uh, welcoming our uh, our other guest, it's um, a variable industry heavyweight. Uh, it's fantastic to welcome him to the uh, for the first time to the Sportsloft podcast, though he has been at a variety of Sportsloft events and showcases previously. Uh, Keegan Pierce is the managing director for the UK and Ireland at La Liga. Yes, that La Liga, that one of uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona and Atletico Madrid and all of those big, wonderful names. In addition, he holds a board position at the Spanish Chamber of Commerce and has experience previously with Lagardere Sports and Major League Soccer as well. So, Keegan, welcome finally to the Sportsloft podcast. It's great to have you on. I'm glad we could make this happen, Yanni. Thanks so much for uh, for hosting us today. Well, it's it's great to have you guys on, and uh, there's a number of topics that we want to get into. Before we do that, though, as we always do, I want to ask you each for your favorite sporting moment of the week. Now, transparently, we were supposed to record this a week ago, and I believe that Nick has a moment from two weeks ago, but we will, on this occasion, let it slide. Thank you for letting that slide, Yanni. Um <laughs> It's uh, and the reason it is that because I used I used to work at the ECB, so the cricket is incredibly close to my heart, um, mm-hmm. and I think just the Ashes, the Ashes, both the men's and the women's Ashes, just a victory. You just it, it, you couldn't have scripted it. It just had absolutely everything, mm. and just the way it finished as well for the men with Brody retiring, final ballie bowls gets a wicket. I mean, hopefully it does incredibly well. Or, or the, the future of cricket is in safe hands, I think, w- w- when it comes to the England team. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that sort of passes its way down to, as I say, the youth side of things and the grassroots side of things. But um, I suppose, if nothing else, the bucket hat is back. <laughs> Apparently they sold 10,000. 10,000 of those hats were sold. It took me back to my youth. And no, I will not be getting one. <laughs> I saw uh, I saw some beer snakes happening as well, which is uh, which is very much a cricket thing. Um, but interestingly, also and for the for the upcoming conversation, um, it produced a lot of incredible moments uh, and a lot of uh, really shareable moments that, uh, that that showed up in a lot of my feeds um, and and I'm sure a lot of other people's feeds who are um, shall we say even remotely sports adjacent. So that'll give us uh, that'll kind of feed into one of the topics that we've got coming later on, Keegan. Over to you. What uh, what was your highlight of the week? I have been glued over the course of the past few weeks to the Women's World Cup. Uh, mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of attending my first one way back in 1999 in California, where I grew up, and then actually covering the 2003 edition as a journalist when it was moved from China to the US because of SARS and a very last minute decision by FIFA. And so it's been a tournament that's been near and dear to my heart. And I think it's just one of the most exciting things happening in our sport right now to see the level to see the broadening of the game, to see the level of engagements uh, that exists. And, you know, uh, I could be lamenting seeing uh, the U.S. being uh, eliminated by Sweden. But to be honest, the team that has me most uh, excited, I'm not just saying this because of my employment, is the Spanish women's national team. You know, the league just went professional for the first time this past year in Spain. It was not a fully professional league until then. Uh, I think they have the best player of the tournament of Aitana Bonmati and of Barcelona in terms of skill, in terms of just playing the game in the right way. So, uh, yeah, I will be um, 
trying to figure out how to navigate my work day when I watch Spain in the quarterfinal tomorrow morning that kicks off at 2 uh, a.m. UK time. <laughs> well, this will be published after that. So uh, we will we will know what the result is uh, or was after that. Having said that, we the last round uh, table podcast that we did that was just released, we asked for some predictions from the panel as to who would win the Women's World Cup. Um, tragically, everybody whiffed horribly. I myself picked the US and as you just alluded to that, uh, uh, that, that went out the window. Uh, but we'll revisit that at the end uh, between us and see, uh, see how, we, uh, how we manage. But um, let's get into the topics. And uh, the first topic is how sports organizations should navigate the flux in social media space. And to kind of set the scene um, a, a, a little bit, obviously the social media landscape is is changing, both in the sense of the historic behemoths of Web 2.0, um, Twitter or X, if, if you are prepared to go down that road, um, Reddit, uh, Facebook or Meta or, you know, all of those platforms are starting to experience uh, difficulties. And then we have threads coming out as a competitor to X and there's a massive fragmentation. And it, we're also starting to see a lot of influencers being very focused on specific platforms uh, because that's where uh, either they monetize better or they get better followings. And therefore, it feels like the conversation is no longer centered in one place. How should sports organizations react to that? Nick, give us your thoughts on that and, and what you're seeing from the from the world of, of Greenfly. And maybe explain a little bit what Greenfly does so that people can get their um, get their bearings on that. Bear with me here. I am literally only a month in, as I said, with Greenfly. So so forgive me if, if, if I don't know all the nuts and bolts. Yeah, essentially, it's, it should be part of an organization's tech stack for short form content. Mm -hmm. And it's there to enable um, sports organizations. And it, it doesn't have to just be sports organizations, but that's where, where we're really focusing our, our, our efforts and have done over the last few years. But it's part of that tech stack which enables organizations to, I suppose, create organize and then distribute short form video photos whatever it is um and not just for the sake of it it a lot of it is around commercial mm -hmm. return a lot of it is around growth in certain key territories but it's very much that product which if i'm being honest with you i don't know how organizations have survived without it because short form content back to what you said Dayani, is, is is becoming so prevalent and has been for years but actually nobody has really had a place where they can create this type of content and actually distribute it to their athletes, to the fans, to their actually back to their owned and operated platforms. Because we forget that that's still an increasingly sort of popular place that people will consume content. Yes, you've got your social media platforms. It's really important. And most rights holders and teams want content to sit on their own and operates because that's where they can really truly monetize them. Um, but also from a broadcaster perspective, and if you're a federation to a team. So Ultimately, Greenfly is, 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 is that sort of tech enabler for that creation, for that organization of short form content, and then the distribution of that to whoever you see fit, but to help it grow and to help your business grow and commercialize it. And back to your question, it is becoming fragmented. And, and, and I'm always like, my wife calls me Mr. Health and Safety. And she calls me Mr. Health and Safety because I'm relatively risk averse. <laughs> So, for example, if she goes out on the bike, I'm like, if you've got your helmet on, if you pump the tires up, is the chain all right? Whatever it is. That's what I mean by health and safety. Mm -hmm. And I sort of take sometimes take the same view, particularly when I was on the other side of the fence at the ECB or at the RFU. In you will have all teams have limited resources, as we all know. And actually, in the current economic climate, it's probably going to get slightly, slightly more, more, more tight in terms of those resources. So you have to focus your efforts. Mm -hmm from my perspective, where you're going to get the return. Now, there are going to be new, like, as you say, threads has popped up. And obviously, when I was at Meta, we, we, we knew that that was the case and that was going to be coming out. But even if I was still at Meta, and whenever we were introducing a new product, I always had the client's best interest at heart or the partner's best interest at heart. And that is not about completely pivoting. It's not about suddenly jumping and shifting all your focus over to one platform over another. You should test and learn with it. You should basically dip your toe in the water with it. You should definitely be using it and not ignoring it. But from my perspective, it's basically understanding what works and what doesn't work. And I always have the mantra is fish where the fish are. Mm -hmm. So Keegan, to that point, tell us 
how does La Liga use social and how do you think about it? What is its purpose and how do you think about using the content, purposing the content for specific platforms? What's the what's the outlook? Yeah, I think the most important thing to understand about us as, as an organization at the outset is that we consider ourselves to be a challenger brand. You know, we're, yes, one of the biggest football leagues in the world. Uh, yes, the home of big clubs, big players and all the rest. But we also understand, and this is one of the great things about football, that it's a competitive international landscape. And so we are constantly looking to ensure that we are maximizing our exposure, that we're maximizing our revenue generation for partners, and that ultimately we're giving uh, all 42 of our clubs across the first and second divisions of men's football in Spain the best platform on which to grow internationally. And so the way that translates into social media strategy for us is being willing to go wide and to really try out a lot of different things. So, you know, we currently, as per our calculations, are the most followed social uh, or most, most followed football league on social media anywhere in the world. So 200 million followers across the 20 different platforms that we're currently housed on. And when I say 20, I mean not 20 accounts. I mean 20 different social media platforms or providers that we work with. Um, and we do that in 16 different languages. So you know everything from English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Arabic to um, uh, Nigerian pigeon, uh, to which we regularly posted on, on Facebook, um, uh, working in Bahasa in Indonesia, etc. Et so uh, for us, it's really a strategy about making sure you're familiar with platforms, making sure that when you can and you feel that bit of confidence that Nick alluded to, you can't be every, all things to all people, but certainly if you see a first mover advantage on a platform, you should go for that first mover advantage. That certainly was our, our TikTok strategy from day one ensuring that we were going in, that we were doing bespoke content, that we were doing live content. We're also going to be showing um, our matches this upcoming season in format edited for TikTok and streamed live on TikTok in certain territories. And so um, we feel like you need to be in as many places as you can. You need to know what your priorities are because otherwise it's very easily to, easy to get diluted. And you need to be always thinking global, which not only means projecting one message to the world, but also tailoring your message so you can be locally relevant to uh, every single territory. Just as an example, here in the UK and Ireland, instead of setting up a La Liga UK account, which we felt would be a bit strange in terms of the size of the audience, we use our La Liga TV social social media networks, which is our flagship 24-7 English language content channel. We use that as our, as our de facto UK and Ireland channel to promote events, to work with local content creators, to be able to do things that otherwise might not fit in just a La Liga with a UK flag next to it. So always trying to find new ways to reach consumers and to and to really think bold and broad and globally. And where do you think those decisions are are best housed and are taken in the best way? Because uh, you know I've I've been in organizations where those decisions sit with the marketing team. I've been in others where um, those decisions sit basically nowhere, and somebody has to like champion them. In in your view, Nick, when you've been um, uh, in in position and now with one month of experience uh, with the Greenfly, how? What are the structures and the teams that you've seen operate best in terms of getting the most out of each individual platform? Um, and how do you see those teams being challenged with this changing landscape? I will speak from experience from having worked on the other side of the fence, so to speak. And in one organization, which I will not name, I, I basically sat in every single department. Bear in mind, I, I was head of digital at the time. It was comms, it was marketing, it was commercial. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always felt that sitting in the, the commercial department enabled the team and the, the department to be able to get the visibility and the investment that it required to actually do things in the right way. But also have, if you have that mindset, because ultimately, I mean, it may be different, and I think it is slightly different in the US. There is a certain mindset over here that digital and technology is seen as a cost. But actually, the reality is, if it's positioned and it's done in the right way, and I'm just from my perspective, if it sits in the commercial team and it is a revenue generator, then actually it's not a cost. It's actually an investment and actually can be a profit center if it's done correctly. Um, and I think the US do that really well. Um, I think over here, it's, it's slowly getting into that place where actually they're seeing the opportunity, they're seeing the value, they're seeing the benefit. But it doesn't just happen overnight. And there doesn't need to be an investment in that, in that area. Um, both from a content production perspective, from a technology perspective, 
But if it's done in the right way, it can definitely reap rewards further down the line. And Keegan, how do you guys build it? Because you have the added challenge of geography, right? You're heading up La Liga in UK and Ireland, but then there's obviously the equivalent in Asia, North America, rest of Europe. So how how do you make those decisions as a league? And how do you as the leader of the business in the UK and Ireland think about purposing and monetizing those platforms to the maximum capacity? You know, I think one of the things is, or one of the first steps is making sure that you're, you know, aware of the platforms you're working with and you're aware of where they fit within your priority of, of a digital and content strategy. Um, it's really important that I think from whatever uh, locus within the organization, whether it's headquarters or, or an office that specializes in digital, that you have a strong enough relationship so that you can be always at the forefront of new features and new options that are being rolled out by the platforms. Um, you want to have access to those. You want to understand them. You want to incorporate them into your plans in real time so that you're taking advantage of features that are available that may not be available to small business owners or the mass market uh, for another year or two down the road. Um, I think you need to also, you can't expect to do everything globally. You need to be able to uh, make decisions on a local level, be that about content strategy, be that around uh, the languages that you're operating in, or even platforms that may have a regional um, relevance, but are not necessarily fully global platforms. And so I, I think it requires, you know, uh, a real mix and a certain degree of, uh, of give and take within an organization to be able to, uh, yes, have um, economies of scale, yes, have synergies with platforms that you work with globally, but then also to allow on a local level, for example, that here in the UK, we can define the content strategy for La Liga TV, both as a channel and as a, and as a social media platform. We can decide who the talents are. We can identify the key storylines. We can activate events around some of the things that are within the La Liga TV sphere and that each major office of La Liga around the world have that same flexibility so they can continue mm. to be relevant. And so let's talk, let's talk brass tacks. Let's talk like, you know, what's, what's going on. Nick, again, month in, but I'm sure these are conversations that are happening in the office all the time. Are your clients turning away from X slash Twitter? Are they completely repurposing their strategy? Are they shifting? How, how are those shifting sands being perceived by your, by your clients? Um, I think it depends who you talk to. Hmm. It's going to sound very strange, but depending on the pressure that is coming from on high, because a lot of people will see the news, they'll see something new and they'll go, what's our strategy for that? Mm. Everybody's seen that in the media. It's like, what's the strategy for this? What's the strategy mm. for that? And it, it also takes somebody who's within that team to be very strong and go, listen, we're just going to sit tight here and we're going to wait and see, but we will test and we will learn. Where there's others that I've, again, not naming any names, who, because they've got the resources and they've got... They've got the ability to be able to pivot quite quickly, but without losing anything over here, they can, they will go full on in. But so certain bigger organizations will be able to go and test and learn and devote resources and time and effort because it is time and effort. It's a lot of time and effort to do mm. this stuff. People say you can just repurpose stuff. Yeah, you can, but actually as, as Keegan will know, as I do, you have to have a specific strategy. Gone are those days where you can just literally go across everything. Um, but for the smaller ones, like the smaller organizations with limited resources um, and lower budgets, I think it's much harder. It's much harder. And going back to my point earlier was fish where the fish are. And actually, you mm. don't need to be at the cutting edge. You can follow that crest of the wave and you can come out the other side pretty unscathed. If if, if you haven't got those resources, you can just watch and learn. But again, as Keegan says, if, if there are others who want to be at, at, right at the cutting edge of things, then that's a great place to be. Mm. But again, it just depends on the resource. And that's what I'm hearing at the moment. Uh, Keegan, from from a rights holder perspective, how do you guys treat, let's say, new new products within existing platforms, new platforms? Do, do you take the approach of let's try a bunch of different stuff and see what works and go from there? Do you actually say, well, here are two strategies. We're going to split test and see what goes best, and you know the the, the traditional sort of tech product approach. But what's what's the what's the approach that you guys take? Because you don't generally have a tech mindset within a sports organization, right? Unless it is the head of digital or something like that. So it's, I'm very fascinated to kind of hear how you guys approach that. You know, we've been fortunate in this regard really for two reasons. One, because the the vision of the organization is to be very much native to digital and tech. And in fact, 
as you may know, we uh, announced a, a year and a half ago our own spin-off organization, which is called La Liga Tech, which actually is a B2B services provider to lots of other rights holders and broadcasters throughout the industry. So I think the the challenge, and this really comes from up top within La Liga, is that we need to always be thinking digital first, uh, to be thinking of being at the forefront of innovation and all the rest. Um, you know, when you're a sports organization and you're running a competition, you have a, a basic asset, which is really the most valuable asset for all of us in this industry, which is the calendar. Mm. And that, that, that asset means that you're fighting for people's time, you're fighting for people's eyeballs, and that you also, yes, you can innovate in real time, but real time always comes down to a fundamental question. Is this for beta testing this season? Is this for a full rollout next season? Is this for beta testing next season? And I'm going to not dip my toe in the water at this point in time. So in many ways, you can be open to new inputs and to new ideas and to new features, but you also need to make sure that it fits around certain key moments during the course of your own season. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, for us, for example, the season launch, which we're just rolling out right now, an entire new brand around La Liga as well with EA Sports as a title sponsor, a brand, a brand new broadcast look and feel. We've been spending months, you know, more than a year, in fact, making sure that every single bit of the content that's offered around that is really in line with the storytelling we want to do around La Liga. Now, maybe our next big rollouts will come around a major derby, like you know between Athletic Bilbao and Real Sociedad, maybe between uh, Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid, or even El Clasico, which are also really big moments throughout the season to be able to roll out new features within within our world. Um, but I think it goes back to that idea, you know, Yanni, of really having a strong enough environment or a relationship with the platforms so that you're always at the forefront of this stuff when it's being mm. rolled out because they're, they're only going to make 10, 15, 50 calls when they're about to roll out a new feature, whether it's in terms of engagement, whether it's in terms of live, whether it's in terms of, um, uh, you know, sleeves or interactivities or filters. And so you need to make sure that you are constantly top of mind. You need to work on this on a daily basis with all of your partners so that they come to you first when they want you to be their sandbox. And I think that's where having a culture of innovation is positive for a league. If there's a receptiveness from an organization to working with those kinds of features and a frankness when you're willing to say, you know what, I've taken a look, but it's just not for me. I think it's much easier to be getting those kinds of approaches than if you are so risk averse that you decide not to do anything until three seasons hence. Mm. Talk a little bit about um, uh, La Liga Tech because it's a fascinating project and kind of um, how how you've rolled that out and how you're implementing it uh, going forwards before we jump back into the world of social media and, and influencers and all of that. Sure. I will try to make a, a sort of a three or, or more of a five or six year story in, in a very short period of time. But essentially, La Liga decided to invest in a number of technologies and to develop them in-house and not necessarily to go through third party when we were uh, when we had just recently centralized the sale of the media rights in Spain. So Spain, mm -hmm. you know, and La Liga was one of the last major club competitions in Europe to centralize the sale of media rights. And that meant that from 2014 to 2015, suddenly La Liga found itself in the position of being responsible for the monetization of the full audiovisual rights portfolio for all 42 clubs. We decided to invest in a number of technologies to run the competition and to protect the value of those rights, including content protection, hired a team of cybersecurity experts uh, to create what is now seen very much in the industry as a best-in-class content protection um, set of tools. And word of mouth led us to uh, starting to, to license that out on a white-label basis. Um, bit by bit, as we saw that industry, you know, organizations such as uh, Dorna and MotoGP, such as um, um, several football leagues and federations across Europe, broadcasters throughout you know, uh, the Americas were starting to ask us about our own technologies. We said, hey, there may be something to this where we could start licensing out our technology. And fast forward, we launched La Liga Tech as a wholly owned subsidiary of La Liga. We develop interest from Globant, who are, of course, uh, FIFA partners um, and, uh, you know, the uh, unicorn company uh, originally based in Argentina, but now traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And they decide to invest at 51% in uh, La Liga Tech as a joint venture between both entities. And so we have the core of the products, which are really about fan engagement, content monetization, content protection, and sort of competition management tools. But now we have the power and the muscle and the reach of the guys at Globant who are able to fit us into their suite, you know, into their technology stack of, of, of products that can be offered to clients around the world. And, and now, you know, we're, we're this past summer, we were um, the official content protection providers of 
the championships at, at the All England Club for Wimbledon. And so bit by bit, we are expanding our footprint into industries that have nothing to do with football, but have the same challenges that we do as, as rights owners. So when can we expect to see the La Liga social media platform? The La Liga social, uh, our own social media platform. Um, watch the space. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well. Um, circling circling back to it, and um, Nick, obviously, one of the um, as we were talking about, one of the things that uh, Greenfly is particularly keenly focused on is is using content and using the amplified reach of uh, the entire ecosystem of a rights holder. So that's the team, the players, the even the fans themselves. Uh, and making content available to them to share. That obviously raises the question of the division of church and state, shall we say, and sort of the new um, uh, the new paradigm of this generation of fans following players more than they follow a club, right? And then you have the, the third component, which is the league sitting on top of that as well. So uh, how how does an organization, a rights holder, whether it is a league or whether it is a team, leverage that in the best way in order to drive ultimately what it what it wants and needs which is commercial revenue for itself um given the the new uh, the new world where all of these players are have massive followings and realize that they are brands in and of themselves and you know obviously we'll ask keegan in a second but some of the, some of the brands the player brands within uh, la liga are some of the biggest in the world you know people who who drive uh, who could drive millions in sponsorship deals through their own channels without needing to rely on anything else with that question my head goes back again back to me being on the other side of the fence mm. and like 10 12 years ago and I'll be honest, I, I, I had, and the organization had a very protection. This is our content. This is what we do. We use it. We want to make the most out of it. We don't want anybody else. We don't want other entities who are even, even though they're part of the sport and the industry to use it because it's ours. We want to maximize it. I now realize how naive that was. And actually going back to, to, to what you were saying earlier is it, it is about utilizing that whole ecosystem because other organizations are starting to do it. I mean, I, I, I look at... Um, and again, say just in the early days, but you look at PSG, for example, they're utilizing Greenfly in, in a wonderful way and using it for athlete distribution and their content, but not just for the sake of it. They're going into their commercial partnerships, renewals, new deals, and they're talking about not just P, um, PSG's owned and operated platforms and the growth in the reach. And that is significant, don't get me wrong, but they're also now including their players and part of that ecosystem. Mm which then takes it into a different stratosphere, as you say, because you will have players, not all of them, and not at every club, but who will be bigger in terms of their social media following than the club. Hmm. And that has to, and, and I think there's going to be some kind of shift when it comes to, and clearly I, I, I'm, I'm not privy to footballers' contracts and the way that those are negotiated, but obviously if, if, if they're starting to be included in sales decks for football clubs, be that PSG or Man United, then obviously that, 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 that has a value to the player as well because well, you're going to get a return on this based on the fact that you're utilising me in those decks. So that has something. Um, we then look at, and I look at the NBA because it's not just your elite elite stars as well. It's actually, you've got players that are up and coming and particularly in, in, in the women's arena as well. So we look at the NBA. We were over there again on my whirlwind tour. We were over in um, New York uh, the other week and we went into their office and had a wonderful meeting with them. But I was flabbergasted with how much, how they are utilising Greenfly, not just across sort of the, the main NBA, but across the whole spectrum mm. from the women's games to college to whatever it is. Um, but using it to leverage, I suppose, their organisation as a brand to generate significantly more revenue, to create growth, but to drive their own and operate it as well, which I was quite surprised, mm. which just goes back to my point I made earlier, because everybody sees sort of the distribution, particularly with green flyers. Oh, it's, it's, it's moving it out of into social media, but this was driving their app. And I think that was really, really important to them because for them, that's this short form content. Okay. Can live over there, but also they do have a huge audience on their app and being able to consume this content. But also if, if and my final point on this is you look at the broadcaster side of it as well. They're wanting content from athletes and from players, but they don't always get it. Mm. Um, and the way the Premier League and UEFA are, are, are working with us is, is to do exactly that, is to get this content from 
by the side of the pitch from athletes, whatever it may be, to actually start to push into their social media accounts or to put even push in to linear because the power of these players and these athletes is huge. Now, don't get me wrong, people follow the club. I'm a scouser, I'm from Liverpool, I support Liverpool Football Club. Um, so that's in my blood. But as you said, that the sort of the younger generation or, or, or just a different type of fan, because hmm. you don't have to be a hardcore fan, you can still be a casual fan. But that may mean that you may not be as vested in the club, but you will definitely be vested in the athlete. Hmm. So it, 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 it's a really interesting challenge. And I think that's only going to get exacerbated as we move forward as well. Absolutely. I mean, Keegan, you know, you mentioned you mentioned that La Liga is the most followed football league in the world. Um, and yet, you know, as, as Nick says, the following pales in comparison to some of the some of the biggest stars and even some of the some of the people who are um, not the, the shining lights. And so there is that very focus, key focus on individuals and kind of their stories. Um, are players the enemy? How does how does it work from a commercial perspective? <laughs> No, I mean, players are most definitely not the enemy. I think you need to recognize the basic landscape of all of these members of the ecosystem and really have a strategy for incorporating them. So, you know, those can be strategies from a purely contractual point of view. So, you know, uh, Real Madrid and, and other clubs around the world quite famously include player image rights as part of any contract they sign with a player. Now, they're in a negotiating position where they can do that. Not every football club can make that kind of a demand and have have players still signing on the on on the bottom line but that's a, that's one approach to it uh nick mentioned the nba i had the the pleasure of sitting in about five years ago on the nba's rookie transition program which is where they welcome the class of rookies about 60 of them in a hotel in suburban new jersey and over three days they basically teach them the ropes of welcome to your life as a professional and what does that mean now there are still things that are negotiated throughout the regular cycle between the nba and the players association but this this rookie transition program is put on by the union and the league at the same time. And it, it makes the players come away with a sense of belonging to something bigger that yes, you know, you may have your agent, you may have your rights. There might be certain terms in your contract, but also you are part of the NBA family. And that makes a big difference when suddenly these questions are being asked of, you know, can we include this? Can we share this? Can it be part of a wider package, et cetera. Um, uh, I think, you know, I think it's absolutely true that there is a shift towards younger fans who maybe play or first. It's very, you know, it's the nature of your maybe your first touch point with a sport like football, you know, being through video games and therefore you can switch the player around on teams and you can you can pick to wherever that player has gone. Um, we're very clear from our perspective that, you know, if people are plan fans of players or they're fans of clubs, they're certainly not fans of leagues. You know, people uh, the, the famous meme of Rob Lowe sitting in the stands with his NFL hat on, you know, like that that became a joke because people don't sit in the stands with an NFL hat on, nor do they sit in with a La Liga hat, even though we love our new logo, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so you always need to make sure that you have that first touch point of affinity for fans in mind when you're constructing your overall strategy around these things. Mm. Absolutely. So uh, before we move on to the next topic, one final question. You can talk about algorithms if you want to, by the way, Keegan, you sort of hinted a little bit at, at having a really close relationship with the platform so that you can try to get ahead of potential changes and, and, and all the rest of that. Um, what's your prediction for X? I'll open the floor. Nick, what's your feeling? He's not stupid. He's not stupid. That's for, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people have, and I've spoken to a lot of people who'd be like, yeah, this is it, it's dead, it's done, it's gone. And I'm, I'm just like, this guy is super smart. He knows what he's doing. You look at the companies that he's worked for, the companies he's grown, the companies sold, everything. He knows what he's doing. It may not be clear just at the moment exactly what it's going to be and what it's going to do. But I don't, I think what we'll see in six months time, 12 months time will be completely different from what we've got at the moment. So I don't think it's done. I, I, I'm actually just quite interested and excited to see actually how it changes and potentially disrupts what's currently going. Keegan? Yeah, I'd, I'd pick up on Nick's point about it, it may not be clear at this moment in time. And I think that's one of the reasons why the, the parlor game of where Twitter <laughs> slash X will be heading at some point in the future is such a difficult one to play because no one knows exactly what the vision is at this point in time. And no one is really able to clearly discern the direction of travel, although there are some early hints about what some of those characteristics might be. Speaking purely from a personal perspective, it is definitely the social 
network in which I have invested the most time, where I have learned the most, where I have enjoyed the most. And so um, it can change its name and its, its color scheme three or four times over. And it would take a mass exodus from that platform for me not to be a real devotee of it. And so I almost, you know, I'm hopeful from an industry perspective, but also from a, a personal perspective that it remains in good hands and that the asset that it has been to global discourse for the course of the past, you know, uh, nearly a decade now can remain an asset, you know, to the service of, of, of humanity, if I can put that little uh, spin, spin on it. <laughs> Absolutely. I, for, just from a personal perspective, when when the app icon changed on my phone, even though, you know, I'd read about it, I'd stayed up to, I, I had a, a moment of just utter confusion and uh, and not really understanding what was going on. I still can't find it, Yanni. Like, I'll, yeah. I'll, go, I'll, I'll open up my main screen and I'm just staring at it for a little while. Like, the, when you open the refrigerator, you don't know what you want to eat. It's exactly. the same sort of thing, you know? I saw something interesting, actually, just before we move on, that, that um, just from a branding perspective, Twitter was the only logo the 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 blue bird was the only logo that benefited from close to 100% recognition and attribution which makes a very very uh, compared to Instagram or Meta or you know and even even several other major prominent brands McDonald's you know and stuff like that so it was very it, certainly from that perspective a very interesting choice to change but as you say he's a smart guy so let's see where it goes so moving on uh, we're going to tackle the topic of preseason friendlies and uh, tackle being a very uh, interesting and relevant word. There have been some pre some um, La Liga preseason friendlies, including um, El Clasico, with uh, uh, which was played in very much uh, very much a uh, El Clasico spirit and not a preseason friendly spirit with some uh, crunching tackles. Um, but we're here to talk about the business um, opportunities of, of preseason tours. Um, so so starting off with that. Um, Keegan, talk to us about the La Liga Summer Tour, uh, which is uh, which is in the U.S. and Mexico, and um, how how that's been received so far. You know, it's this was um, one of the 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 first major, well, certainly the first major summer tour that we've done under our new partnership with EA Sports. Um, mm -hmm. It was really important for us in this particular summer to make sure that we were bringing um, top teams over to North America, given the importance of the market. Uh, North America for us is actually managed through a joint venture that we have with the folks at Relevant. So our uh, New York office is you know, a, a joint venture between La Liga and Relevant on the ground in the US, who obviously have you know, decades of experience in organizing uh, preseason uh, and other uh, exhibition matches within uh, within North America. It's also important to mention that for us, North America is Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And this is something that I certainly believe strongly in, and La Liga does as well. That 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 really is one market that happens to have two borders that go through it. But until you really understand issues of language, issues of identity, issues of content generation, you're not really understanding how to. Uh, you know, how to take on the U.S. or U.S. and North American market until you see how all three of those countries fit together with each other. Yeah. So, um, yes, there were many clubs playing friendlies uh, in the course of the summer. Some were part of our official summer tour and some were not. But we did uh, in Monterrey, Mexico, in Guadalajara, and then also in San Francisco, a, a doubleheader at um, the San Francisco Giants Stadium. Uh, had over you know, 100,000 attendees. Uh, really good activation from partners across the board, an opportunity for um, the clubs that were involved, which were Atletico Madrid, Real Sociedad, and then the two Seville clubs, so Sevilla and Betis, had a chance for several of them to visit the EA sport offices, sports offices in California, and just overall to feel like La Liga was able to uh, begin this new era for our brand with a, a major party on North American soil. And just just before we um, uh, get next views on that, give us what the objectives of that tour are. Are they increasing the prominence of the team? Is it increasing the prominence of the league? Is it paying back to uh, local sponsors? Is it building the media audience? What When you're thinking about a, a, a tour together with EA Sports, obviously, and I'm sure they played a pretty big role in, in, in forming those KPIs, but what were slash are the objectives? You know, the, the objectives are, are really holistic in the sense that it's absolutely about connecting with fans and making sure that, that fans feel that much closer to the, the clubs that they're supporting. Now, you know, in North America, there's great connection to European football. And so these are, this is not like yesteryear when maybe the first time those fans might even see a live match on television or in person of their club 
is during a tour. Now you're expecting that the fan is going to be, you know, watching them week in and week out, and they're just enjoying the the in-person experience during the course of the tour. It's also really important to understand that the the squads that go over need to be strong ones because uh, it's a discerning consumer these days that goes to these kinds of friendlies, and it's not it's not enough to rock up with a badge and some colors. You need to have mm. the biggest stars, the latest signings. You need to play with strong squads and all the rest. Um, I think then you need to look at the stakeholders sort of by territory and, you know, certainly two uh, very prominent ones are EA Sports, but also ESPN, who's our broadcast partner in the US, and them having the ability to be able to engage and activate around the, the things that we do on the ground. So um, I think it's, it's very much a B2C and a B2B uh, approach. And it's one where you also need to prioritize in terms of how many matches, um, uh, uh, how much travel. It's not the same thing for a football club to organize these where they can use a certain logic from a sporting perspective to decide how they set the pace. Whereas when you're a league, suddenly all the responsibility falls on your shoulders. And if things go well, if they go badly, it's your clubs that you have to answer to. And so it's an undertaking that needs to be, you know, uh, regarded with some seriousness, with a sense of responsibility and a sense of strategy. And certainly we're happy with how things turned out for for the four matches that we managed to do between the US and Mexico this summer. Fantastic. Nick, how can um, leagues, clubs, and even players themselves who um, go to new markets and address new audiences make the most of those opportunities? What are the, what, what are the best ways to capitalize on those in your view? Well, I think it goes back to sort of what Key was saying. It's actually being clear about what what are you actually trying to do when you go to these places. Clearly, there, there is about growth, but is it, 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 if you don't have that clarity, then it's very, very hard to decide what, what you should and shouldn't be doing. But fundamentally, if you think about it, the restrictions, if, it, if it's not run by the league, if it is, say, your own club is just going on a pre-season tour somewhere, you clearly have a lot of freedom to do more, should I say, than you probably can do during the season both with players, with your live rights, with whatever it may be. Um, and I think it's looking at how do you how do you maximise that, A, from a player perspective, how can you bring across both individually and as a unit, from my perspective, is the collectiveness of the team, but then how can you utilise the players to be driving the messages or the unity or whatever it is that you want putting out there. And obviously Greenfly helps. We've, we've helped sports organisations do that for, for, for years. But I think the main important is, is is the two commercial elements of it, which is how can they drive their own direct-to-consumer property mm. and using social media as the top of the funnel to drive people back for the live if they have retained those rights and they have those rights. Clearly, there's there's a huge amount of investment that needs to go into that and not all clubs can do it. Um, and I was clearly, I'm a sport Liverpool, but I was following what they were doing and clearly there's a huge amount of investment that's been put into that, but there's a real business objective that's been driven there, which is to drive their own and operate it is to drive their own direct relationship with that consumer, mm. but using the, the players to do that as well. And I think in the past, it's probably just been all, the, all of it's been through the club's own and operated channels. And when I say owned and operated, I mean social media channels as well. But why not utilize the players in that? Mm. Because going back to the point that we were saying previously, they have a huge reach and can start to drive um, the commercial side of it for the club as well. And I think it's also an opportunity to test and learn with different content formats because there are less restrictions. There's more of a, 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 a relaxed feel, even though it's it's clearly incredibly serious because it's pre-season and the training, but it's very different than a normal match week, mm. if, if you know what I mean. And can they test and learn with new content formats that A, will help grow their channels, but B, could become commercial assets for different commercial partners in different territories? Mm. Who knows? But it, it's it's using that, that, that sort of area and that space that they have on pre-season without distracting from the on-field importance, mm. but to actually think about how can we actually drive some, some some different objectives here or drive our own objectives, but through different types of co um, content creation. Mm. And th that's, that's, a very, that's a very interesting point, which kind of comes, um, uh, sparks in my mind a question for you, Keegan, which is that, you know, look, Real Madrid and, and, and Barcelona, you have, you have kids wearing those jerseys from, you know, the, the, from Rio all the way up to Chicago and, you know, all the way across to, to, to Japan. Everybody knows those brands. From a practical perspective, when you guys are organizing a tour to, to North America um, and you're looking at those, at those outcomes and you have those, those four teams, which are, you know, not on the same from just from a popularity standpoint uh, level as those two, those two other teams. 
is there a challenge selling it to them? Do do they see the opportunity? Do they believe that there's an opportunity to convert fans? Uh, is it uh, how does the how does the sporting play into it? It's just um, because you can see how Real Madrid and Barcelona, for example, would be like, yes, absolutely, I want to be in Chicago. I can build continue building on my fan base there. I can activate with my North American partners. You know, the reality is that the 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 the, the teams for and below probably just don't have that that remit. So. Do they see that opportunity? What can they do to maximize it? You know, I think what you're aiming for as a league organizing these kinds of tours, and whether it's us or whether it's the Premier League with their you know, summer series in the U.S. as well, uh, you're looking sort of at a sweet spot where you're trying to find um, a group of clubs, a sporting proposition, a commercial proposition, where having the league take the lead on it from a branding, from a logistics perspective, really is adding value uh, that those exact same four or six or eight friendlies of and by their own might not have. So, you know, you can look at clubs like uh, Real Madrid or, or FC Barcelona, who very much have designed their own sort of format for their for their preseason. They've coincided with a number of matches in North America, but they've also gone and done their own things in lots of places. Um, I was um, uh, attending one of the matches during Manchester United's uh, summer tour because they were playing against Athletic Club of Bilbao in Dublin uh, just this past weekend. Mm. And, you know, that was clearly Manchester United, who was not part of the Premier League summer series, going and doing their own thing. And so I think clubs and brands that feel like they can stand on their own two feet will very much always seek to uh, march to the beat of their own drummer because they have the reach, they have the understanding of their audience, and they have, shall we say, the priorities from a commercial perspective that will spur them to to want to be part of that. And I think the sweet spot that ourselves and the Premier League and others are aiming for is how can we create a platform where standing side by side, you know, our two clubs from Seville, Atletico Madrid, which obviously is part of our big three of, uh, of clubs that have been successful during the past decade and a half in, in Spain. And then Real Sociedad, who, you know, are a club who have done tremendous things on the pitch, come from a wonderful city like San Sebastián, but probably still not quite as recognized as a brand internationally as even the Sevillas or the Atletico standing standing beside them. So when you can bring all that together and have La Liga, shall we say, tie a bow on it, uh, not just aesthetically, but in terms of the creation of value, then I think that's where you really see an opportunity for for there to be value there. Otherwise, just the nature of the market is that those tours wouldn't happen in the first place. Mm. Clubs that felt like they didn't see value in it wouldn't have signed up for uh, for an enterprise such as that. Mm. And and very briefly, just coming back to La Liga Tech, do you do you use um, whether it's these preseason tours or any kind of preseason friendlies as test test platforms for new technology to 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 roll out and give us a if so, um, give us a sampling of kind of what you guys are testing out right now. You know, we've done so much testing around our broadcast product, um, but because we weren't controlling the production for a lot of summer friendlies, those are very often deals that are done between uh, clubs, promoters, local producers. We've really kept most of our focus on testing ahead of the new season in the stadiums in which those matches will be played. And by the way, you know, when you tune in from the start of the new La Liga season, you'll be seeing... You know, if the past 15 years uh, video games have attempted to imitate life, you're going to be see life imitating video games from mm. the very first uh, match day of La Liga with graphic overlays, with new camera angles, um, with uh, cinematic cameras being introduced. So it's really going to be something quite quite different. For us, the biggest experimentation during the summer tour and during the preseason in general this year was acquire. It was almost a packaging strategy. Was of acquiring as many of the rights as we could uh, for preseason friendlies. Um, at minimum for the Spanish territory through the club's own contracts, but oftentimes for multiple territories, and making sure that our OTT platform, which is called La Liga Plus, was consistently offering day in and day out uh, all of the live action from as many of those preseason friendlies as possible. So we have the rights to um, uh, Saudi Pro League in Spain. We have the rights to... Um, uh, uh, to Copa Libertadores in Spain, mm -hmm. and we have a whole number of of football and non football competitions that are available on our La Liga Plus app. Uh, we wanted to make sure that preseason this year was folded into that, so that the experience, so the user who signs up for that is getting the most value um, uh, possible. It's fascinating. A league, a tech incubator, a rights acquirer and distributor, 
There's very little that you guys don't do. I sense that you must be the next Sports Loft member company or something along those lines. Ch- ch- check out my wardrobe and I'll show you all my hats. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've put this moment off long enough. It's time for some predictions, gentlemen. Um, I sense that I know where one of them is going, uh, but uh, the Women's World Cup is, uh, is, is happening. We're in the quarterfinal stage. I, as the host of the podcast, get the chance to recast my vote and the US team is out. So therefore, I will unashamedly go with the second home, which is england and say that uh, i'm hoping that the lionesses pull it out um keegan i think there is a there is a little less uh shall we say mystery around uh, your your pick i'm gonna talk through my thinking here for a second because it'll help me make my prediction for the finals but i think we're gonna see australia and england in one of the two semifinals, mm-hmm. and i think we're gonna see japan and spain in the other one okay. and although i am really supporting spain to do this to see the way that Japan wiped the floor with them during the first round, I think we're seeing Japan as the as the the queens of this uh, this women's World Cup. Wow, a curveball! Didn't see that one coming. Um, this is August tenth, by the way, at five oh four p.m. So if that comes out to be true, including the semifinal matches, you heard it here first, folks. You heard it here first, Nick. What you got? Yeah, not not controversial at all. England. Excellent. Excellent. My daughter, my daughter will thank you for that one. She was uh, very upset with me when I picked the US and, uh, and, and has, has let me know about it. Right. Well, um, to our listeners, uh, uh, please do uh, share your thoughts with us uh, on social uh, at Sportsoft HQ uh, on whichever platform it is that you currently reside on and uh, participate with. Um, please do go to our website at sportsoff.co and sign up for our newsletter. Um, and if you like what you heard today, please do make sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All that remains for me is to say a huge thank you to our two guests. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation and hope we can do this again soon. Nick from Greenfly, thank you so much for joining us for the first time one month in on the Sportsoff podcast. It was great to have you. Thank you. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to my dulcet tones as well. <laughs> Very dulcet indeed. <laughs> and uh, Keegan, as always, a pleasure. Thank you for finally joining us on the podcast. Uh, and we can't wait to have you on again soon. Thank you. It, it was my pleasure as well. And I thank everyone for listening to my dull tones. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, all that remains is for me to say a huge thank you to all of you listening and say we'll see you next time in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. <laughs>